Well, would you like to turn back this way? Keep your Bibles open, would you? Page 1199, it'll help me and may help you as well to be able to catch a sight of it. Titus chapter 3. I wonder what are the things you keep needing to be reminded of? Uh, your passwords, your memorable place, your mother's birthday, your wedding anniversary. I wonder how many of us would admit to receiving final reminders before we take action. Um, here's a reminder I've just received. Reminder to get your car taxed. Tax it or lose it. We can always spot an untaxed car. Well, that's fairly clear, isn't it? No doubt about that one. Alec Douglas Hume, the Prime Minister, once said, and was credited with the poem, to my deafness I'm accustomed, to my dentures I'm resigned. I can cope with my bifocals, but oh dear, I miss my mind. What do we need reminding of? An eccentric, absent-minded professor I knew phoned a restaurant to book a uh, reservation. This is a true story. Um, he used to give me tutorials. And uh, the conversation over the phone went something like this. Can I book a table for tonight? Yes, sir. How many people? Uh, for four of us. At uh, what time? 7.30. Yes, sir. Name? I'll phone you back in a moment. Believe it or not, he momentarily forgot his own name. Absolutely true story. We all need reminding of things. Christine says I need reminding of changing my socks, uh, doing the washing up and getting my hair cut. But it's not just secondary or trivial things, but centrally important things that we need constantly reminding of. Now, that's certainly true of our Christian values and vision. One of the mottos at St. Mark's here that we picked up from leadership gatherings uh, is that vision leaks. It's not enough to cast a vision and assume that all of us who've heard it remember it and consistently work towards it. Vision leaks. Christian vision is like a bucket with holes in it. You fill up the vision bucket, but unless you keep filling it up, it steadily drains away. And that's partly due to our forgetfulness, but more significantly, it's because of the diversion and distractions that constantly misdirect our attention and focus. You have to keep topping it up, because the urgent will always be in danger of displacing the important. Or to use a similar illustration, vision cools. You can't just heat up a vision and assume it will remain hot in everybody's passion. Left to itself, vision cools. Our passions cool. And we need to keep reheating the best ones or we'll soon become lukewarm. Now, it seems that Paul was very familiar with this idea. As we've been reading Paul's letter to Titus over these three weeks, a number of emphatic themes have emerged and been repeated even in the space of a letter covering only one double page. But they all resurface in chapter 3 by way of reminder, and that, you notice, is the first word of the chapter. Remind the people of certain things. So let me mention a few of the vision and values that Paul knew would need regularly topping up. 
constant reheating. And I suspect that what was true for the church plants on Crete will certainly be true for us today. Even more so, perhaps, as we are assaulted by diversions and deviations and the constant bombardment of media and other distractions that couldn't have even been imagined in 62 AD. That was approximately the date that he wrote. And about two years before his death by martyrdom, in around 64 AD. So these weren't just yet another set of periodic reminders. These were final reminders. Now the first of Paul's final reminders is the reminder of our call. That is our call from God. And in particular, this call to do good. Look at verse 1 to do whatever is good. There's been this theme of godliness and goodness right back from chapter 1. Because the only Christianity the apostle is at all interested in is the Christianity that leads to godliness, which means godlikeness, doing stuff like God does, and the Christianity that is demonstrated in goodness. The two words, goodness and godliness, are very similar. They, in fact, have the same root in English. Now, that theme is reinforced yet again, and you notice three times in chapter 3, and it's a progression. Do you see verse 1? Remind the people to be ready to do whatever is good. Then in verse 8, so that those who've trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And in verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. So do you see the three words? Prepared, devoted, educated. So that a life that does good is neither simple, nor straightforward, nor easy, nor automatic, nor passive. A life that does good requires preparation. It doesn't just appear automatically or instantly. It requires care of devotion. It doesn't grow, grow without focus. We might say wholeheartedness, single-mindedness. And it requires learning. It doesn't just happen from a good heart or a right spirit. It requires a good mind. One of the most salutary lessons I've read about uh, this is the book with the devastating title, When Helping Hurts. Have some of you come across that book? A few, When Helping Hurts. It's about aid, relief, development work that does more harm than good. But put those three together, the time to prepare for a life that does good the conscientiousness that will need to say no to some things in order to say the bigger yes to the good God calls us to, and the hard thinking that studies what will actually make a difference, a real difference to people's lives, put those three together, and we may be in a position to do some good. Now, there's another development along this theme. In chapter 1, it was doing good in the church. 
and its leadership. The church leader, for example, must love what is good and be fit, not unfit, for doing anything good. The sphere was the church. In chapter 2, it was doing good in the whole congregation's lives and especially in their homes and local community. The older women, for example, teaching the younger women, chapter 2, verse 3, what is good. Titus, modeling to the younger men, verse 7, set them an example by doing what is good. But now in chapter 3, Paul applies the same principle to our citizenship. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. That is, in society. Now, as good members of wider society, Paul mentions four aspects. And I'm sure they apply in the other spheres, in church and in home. But think of them now in wider society. First of all, slander in society. So don't be offensive about anyone, especially your rulers and leaders. Slander no one. You know the difference between slander and libel. Slander is not necessarily, it's a, a, a falsehood. That's what libel is, telling lies. But it's a defamation of people's character or motive. So don't, for example, use emails or social media in any way to impugn another person's character. Especially... And here's three categories. The people you don't know, I don't know Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn. I'm in no position to judge them. People who can't answer so that it's unfair to use your platform in any way. And these days, a social media platform, even from a private individual, can be an enormously powerful one. Or people who've died. Don't assassinate the character of those who've dead. Slander. Secondly, aggression in society. So neither speak against anyone nor fight against them with any personal animosity. Don't be belligerent like the viewers in Gogglebox. Do you admit to occasionally watching that? But be peaceable waiting in a queue, driving your car, dealing with a council department. Thirdly, considerateness in society. And that means graciousness. Uh, just the other week, I did the driver awareness course. How many of you have done the driver awareness course? Round the Wandsworth roundabout, I went through a red traffic light by one second. I was completely unaware that I'd done it. It was quite unintentional. So I did the driver awareness course. And do you know, I really appreciated it. It was worth it. I learned so much that though I've been driving for 50 years, I had no idea of some of the things that constitute considerateness and inconsiderateness on the road. Totally new things. And fourthly, humility in society. It means gentleness, courtesy, 
like the meekness of Christ. And do you notice that phrase, humble towards all? And that's where it counts, the same courtesy to everybody, irrespective of their race or religion or age or appearance or anything else. So, we apparently need this constant reminder of the value for Christians of good citizenship. The reminder to do good, therefore, at every level of our lives. Now, this can cause us to feel smug or self-righteous. So, Paul's second reminder, it's verses 3 to 6, is the reminder of our past. There's an idea that we should put the past behind us, which is true. But furthermore, that we should refuse to recall it. In the way that some might say, I no longer have a low self-image. In Christ, I have a new identity. Or, I'm not an ex-con. I'm a new creation in Christ. The past is put behind me. Now, there's a wonderful truth in those statements. But Paul would strenuously refute the idea that we should forget the past. He tells Titus and all of us how important it is to remind at least ourselves, if not others, of our past. It encourages us to recall the difference that Christ has made. But vitally important, it keeps us from any attitude of superiority towards others. And it testifies to the difference Christ could make for anyone. So it could be a huge encouragement to others, as well as to ourselves. The only reason we dare instruct others is that we know what we were once like ourselves. And that God nevertheless saved us and that he can therefore transform other people too. Uh, by contrast, I suspect, the reason do-gooders in the church are such a turn-off is that people think when someone does good and is known to be a Christian that they think they're better than everybody else. That by definition, a Christian is a good person who thinks they are good. And when, as is usually the case, other people see through them, it's the biggest turn-off of all. What a hypocrite. The antidote is to remember our past. So, verse 4, will you look at it again, accurately describes the change. When the kindness and love of God appeared, He saved me. Not because of righteous things I'd done, but because of his mercy. So that, verse 8, I who had trusted in Christ at least began to devote myself to doing what is good. But you see, there's no superiority. How important, therefore, this kind of reminder was and still is to me. When tempted to doubt that Jesus Christ, my Savior, rescued me, I can look back and see the immediate differences. Now, see how Paul repeats verse 5, he saved us, he saved us. Uh, drop the word saved into conversation today, 
And people's reaction may be to blush, laugh, frown, or snigger. As if you had flatulated publicly. It would be far worse than swearing. Uh, John Stott wrote this. Thus the devil, whose ambition is to destroy, not to save, succeeds in trivializing the most serious question we could ever ask ourselves or put to anybody else. For Christianity is essentially a religion of salvation. And Paul reminds us of these six ingredients of salvation. Our need of salvation, why it's necessary. We were not only foolish but disobedient, not only deceived but enslaved. The source of salvation, where it comes from, not from within ourselves, by discovering ourselves or our potential, as people would say today, but from outside of ourselves, from someone full of kindness and love, verse 4, mercy, verse 5, and grace, verse 7. The ground of our salvation, what it rests on, nothing we've done but what He did on the cross. The means of salvation, how it comes to us when we're washed with forgiveness, He says. Born again, that's rebirth, and given new life, renewal by the Holy Spirit. That has to happen to us. It's not passive or automatic. The goal of salvation, what it leads to, an eternal inheritance, and the evidence of it, how it proves itself in a good life. And that brings me to a third reminder, the reminder of our future. Look at verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Paul urges us to remind ourselves daily, not only of the past put behind us, but also of the future set before us. Salvation is future, as well as past and present. Two astronauts are flying through space on their way to the moon. One says to the other, where are we going? His co-pilot replies, I don't know. Where have we come from? The first one replies, I don't know. It's unthinkable. But if you're traveling through space and you don't know where you've come from or where you're going to, the only meaning to be found in the journey would be within the spacecraft itself. Now, that idea would be absurd of the Apollo space missions. But it's very real of the journey through space which the whole world is traveling. For the earth itself is a spacecraft. And many millions of travelers in spacecraft earth have no idea where they came from and no idea where they're going. And therefore, they have to find meaning totally within the present, now, and wholly within the spaceship Earth itself, here and now. Now, the Bible tells us that in ultimate terms, each one of us came from God, our Creator, and we're heading for God, our Judge. 
But in between those two great poles, the God who made us and will one day judge us has stepped into the world he made to save us. Before he comes to be our judge, he's already come to be our savior in Jesus Christ and his death for us on the cross. And that revolutionary fact changes everything once we've been rescued, saved. It means that personally, in experience, we came from a life that was futile, and we're heading for a life that is eternal and full of hope. So we're not only to look back, but also to look forward. And every Christian living any kind of life that's worthwhile has this vision, this set of values. And it's stressed, do you notice, in each of the three great doctrinal sections in this little letter. In chapter 1, verse 2, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. In chapter 2, verse 12, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now in chapter 3, heirs having the hope of eternal life. So do you see, we live in the present in the light of the past and in the light of the future. Indeed, personally, in the memory of our past and in the hope of our future. Well, there's one more final reminder to Titus. It's the reminder of our battle, and it's in verses 9 to 11. Some Christians may think that once saved, the rest is plain sailing, that all we need to do is drift on through space in our spaceship of life. Now that we know where we've come from and are assured of our destination, where we're going, but these constant reminders, our call, our past, our future, are necessary because of our battle, which will be with us to the end of our lives. So there will always be the possibility of the three negatives, one at the end of each chapter. Did you notice them? Unfit at the end of chapter one. Unworthy or despised at the end of chapter two. And unproductive at the end of chapter three. There are always possibilities. And this is the dark, negative backdrop to the call to the good life, namely the unfit, unworthy, and unproductive life. And to turn that round, I must engage in the spiritual battle. A prayer when I was a student, that's a long time ago, and a new Christian, that has stayed with me. He was a famous Welsh preacher called John Gwyn Thomas. And he spoke to 500 privileged Oxford students. And at the end, he prayed a very brief prayer that he suggested we should all pray. It was this. O oh God, deliver me from the curse of a useless life. It's a good prayer, isn't it? And I commend it to you. So notice how the word foolish reappears in verse 9. Avoid foolish 
controversies. You see, we were delivered from living foolish lives, but we're never immune from falling back into foolish ways. And so we must be constantly on our guard. Now, not all controversy is foolish, and certainly not all theological or ethical debate. Jesus was a controversialist in constant debate with the religious leaders of his day. Paul was drawn into argument with Gentiles and controversy with Jews and even fellow Christians over the gospel. He couldn't avoid it. So not all controversy is ruled out here, but only foolish controversy. Now, this begs the big question, which is which? But there are a few hints here of things to avoid from the four words he used. First of all, things that are speculative. That's what the word controversies really means, speculations. Avoid assertive claims, being dogmatic about things we can't be sure of, that we'll never be sure of in this life. Secondly, things that are inconsequential. Jewish debates about genealogies, who was descended from whom, were secondary and unimportant. Avoid trivial pursuits of no consequence. Thirdly, things that are argumentative, that stir up unnecessary argument, that is. Avoid quibbles. And fourthly, things that are divisive, that unnecessarily divide people. The gospel does divide people but we shouldn't add to that with unnecessary divides. Avoid squabbles. So as I come into land, and as I look back on this letter, I'm struck by this emphasis, the main thing, to live a life that makes a difference in the world. And I'm reminded of the motto that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing which is to live a life that does good before God. In Christ he came, and he will come again. Did you notice the two appearings in chapter 2? His grace came looking for me, chapter 2, verse 11, and grace appeared when Christ first appeared. And his glory awaits me, verse 13, it will appear when Christ will appear again. And I am to live between these two great events in the light of them, his first and second appearances, his grace and his glory. I must consistently remind myself of the call to do good because my past life was foolish, but my future is glorious. And now in the present, it can be productive. And so I long to be fit. I'm not very fit physically. But I want to be fit for doing good, as I'm sure you do. I long to be worthy for the right reason, as I'm sure you do. And not despised for the wrong reason. And I long to be productive And I know you do too. So let's pray for such lives.